and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 25, recorded on October 29th, 2017. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. I hope you're ready to get applications installed on your long-term support systems because Mint is adding Flatpak support. Yeah. So Mint, which is a distro based on Ubuntu, is adding Flatpak and doesn't really want to use Snap, which is a bit strange to me. Why would you when you're based on Ubuntu? That sounds complicated. <laughs> yeah, because I installed Linux Mint, uh, the latest one, which is 18.2, I think. And it didn't have SnapD by default. It's in the repos, of course. And I pulled it down and then I got, uh, I think, Critter, Krita working as a Snap. No problem. But it's just a bit strange that they are ignoring yeah. Snap yeah. in favor of Flatpak. You know, I, I was wondering what that's about. And so I was reading their announcement on, um, this is all part of Linux Mint 18.3. It's going to come with full support for Flatpak out of the box, including integration into the Linux Mint software manager. And here's what the uh, project wrote. Flatpak is very promising to us in its implementation. It's already very stable as far as they're concerned. And one of the key advantages to Flatpak is that it doesn't have a, quote, middleman. It's trivial for ops, upstream software editors to distribute their software to Linux users without having to care about a multitude of distributions or a middleman. And it's easy for distributions like Mint to add their own repositories for future software ideas. Okay, it's a little bit harder with Snap, but you can do that, can't you? Absolutely. Yeah, you can absolutely. You could you could come up with your own distribution for Snaps, absolutely. Especially when you consider that uh, Linux Mint develops their own software center. So it would just be a simple HTTP GET, pull down the Snap, and have the software manager install it. It would absolutely be possible. I think this is maybe in part a political statement, but I think there is some merit to going with Flatpak for Mint because it's it is solving a problem that is almost perfect for Mint. And it's that we want the PPA type approach, but we want to deliver current software on top of a really old, potentially five-year-old base. And it's not that snaps aren't great for that, but if you're not running the central snap store, if you're not managing it, you want to create repos to deliver, say, Firefox for the next five years. With Flatpaks, you can do that. And you can still contain all the GTK dependencies and any of the extra stuff that your base LTS doesn't necessarily have the right version of. Yeah, but it kind of feels at this point to me like they're backing Betamax rather than VHS. I agree that uh, momentum around Flatpak seems to have slowed down a bit and momentum around Snaps has increased. But as long as it's possible to install Snap support on Mint, as an end user, I can still take advantage of whichever one has the most momentum with the most apps. And if maybe it's both of them, then you're, you're better off. And what we might end up with is some distributions by default will, will prefer Snaps, and some distributions by default will support Flatpak. What is a bit different in the implementations right now is, say, Ubuntu, for example. That would be the obvious example. It comes out of the box with Snap support. But that is not in detriment to Flatpak support. It has full first-class support for Flatpak as well. And that seems to be the better approach. Just support them both and let the market decide. But maybe I'm crazy, Joe. Yeah, that does make sense. I don't know why Mint doesn't have SnapD installed by default. It's not a huge amount of room on the disk to have it. And it, why not just have it there as a command line only option for power users, for want of a better word? I suppose it's not hard to apt-get install it, but... For my money, yeah, just have both. Have Flatpak and Snap, integrate them both into the software center, 
and then give people a choice. But I suppose that is more work and it's probably a lot less work to just pick one and and take your gamble. But I just think they've gambled on the wrong thing here. If I were to speculate, I would say that's exactly what it is. They are focusing, which has been a criticism of mine in the past. The Mint project has taken on a lot of extra projects. You have the Debian edition, you have the KDE edition, you have the X apps, you have their main desktop, you have Cinnamon. Um, there's a lot there for them to work on. And what we might be seeing here is Clem or the project saying, we, we're, we're going to narrow our focus and we're going to say we support this really well and that'll be our, our main focus. So this is what we're going to put our weight behind. And that might be why we see them discontinuing their KDE edition as well. Yeah. So in this same newsletter, they also announced that they're dropping KDE as an addition, which kind of makes sense to me because if you want KDE or Plasma on top of Ubuntu, you've already got two pretty solid choices in Kubuntu or KDE Neon. Do you really need a third one with Mint? Absolutely. And they're doing this the right way. They're going to continue one more release cycle. So 18.3 will ship with a KDE spin, but there won't be any after that. So there is a window of time for existing users to make a migration. And really, at least unless something dramatically changes, you could still use the Kubuntu PPAs on your Mint system and install KDE Plasma Desktop that way. But at that point, what's the point? Why not just use Kubuntu? I just don't know, really. Yeah, I agree. I think the Plasma Desktop distro landscape, if you will, um, has changed with really Neon. When KDE Neon came out, I think it's changed the competitive landscape for Plasma Desktops. And I, I applaud Mint doing this because I think focusing is the right move for them. They can maintain less, focus on what they do right, and people have other options that are solid, including existing Mint users. And the fact that they're going to do one more release, that's just the icing on top of all of this. So I think this is a great move. Yeah. I, I think that the Mate edition should probably be next, given you've got Ubuntu Mate now that didn't exist when Linux Mint Mate edition came along. But I think it's probably quite popular still. But I, I think they should just focus on Cinnamon and just be the Cinnamon distro. But it's uh, it's up to them, I suppose, if they want to spread themselves a little bit thinner than that. But for me, you've got to add value. If you're going to be an Ubuntu derivative, you've got to add some value there. And how do you do that? By focusing, in my opinion. And Cinnamon is its own thing that isn't widely used elsewhere. It's kind of available on some other distros, but it's not kind of the flagship of any others. So just concentrate on that make it as good as it can possibly be, and don't waste time duplicating effort like a KDE edition. Pretty much. And they just did a new release of Cinnamon. I'm going to try to give that a look in this week's Linux Unplugged and kick the tires and report back. And, you know, with all this extra time and focus, Joe, maybe they can focus on adding ZFS support to Linux because if one Oracle employee has his way, real Oracle-developed ZFS may become a first-class upstream Linux file system. Yeah, now, I was almost reluctant to put this in the show because, to me, this feels like a non-story. But at the OpenZFS Developer Summit 2017, Mark maybe implied that Oracle are thinking about changing the license, or at least it would be possible for them to change the license, let's say, to make it compatible with the GPL. Because at the moment it's not according to some people according to ubuntu it is it's all a bit of a complicated situation if oracle changed the license to something that is compatible with gpl v2 then we could have proper 
upstream support for ZFS. And this has caused a lot of people to get excited about it, but I just cannot see this happening. Yeah, he couches it a bit more as his presentation goes on. But he did say one thing that made me pause and go, hmm, okay, maybe there's some real fire to the smoke. He said that this is in light of recent reduced investment in Solaris, quote, um, and as they have reduced investment in Solaris and focused more on cloud, which legitimately that is something Oracle has done a lot this year, um, ZFS on Linux has come up more and more internally in conversations. And uh, Mark maybe has been an employee of Oracle since 1998. So he isn't like a spokesperson for the company, but he's probably pretty well acquainted with some of the conversations there. And he brought up ZFS or ZFS, as we say here in the States, on Linux a few more times during his talk. And in fact, he maybe even talked about it more than he talked about Solaris, really, which is kind of funny. Um, and he said, uh, next what may not happen in the past, well, that could still happen with an Oracle. And he said he personally, as a ZFS developer at Oracle, wants to see ZFS become a core part of Linux. He wants it to become the file system of Linux. And he said that could happen for quote-unquote core Linux. It's a possibility, he says. Well, he might also want world peace, and that might also be a possibility, but he's still dreaming if he thinks it's going to happen. In the meantime, OpenZFS seems to work pretty damn great on Linux. I get emails from listeners all the time that have massive storage setups on Linux using OpenZFS. Yeah, and it is soon going to be available on Windows by the looks of things, which isn't massively interesting, but it, it just shows that the development is there, the interest is there, and the proof of concept is available on GitHub. Yeah, this is from an OpenZFS contributor at that same conference we just mentioned, and Brian Contrell, who has been a repeat and favorite guest of the BSD Now show, tweeted out a picture of it happening. It's early support. Like right now, it's currently missing the uh, ZFS volume support and the ability to compile ZFS on top of ZFS. But uh, other than a few remaining bugs, it's pretty damn close, and we're going to be in a reality where you can hook up a ZFS array to a Windows box and read the data very soon. Yeah, and that's going to help adoption, even if it's just a tiny bit. The more platforms it's available on, the more adoption you're going to have. Speaking of Microsoft, this reminded me of Microsoft from the good old days. Google Play Protect is dead last at fingering malware on a survey that was conducted on Android. Yeah, Google Play Protect, which is Google's... Windows Defender? Well, you kind of, but it uses machine learning to constantly scan your device and and scan everyone's devices to see if any apps are behaving badly. Machine learning, so it must be really accurate then, Joe. Uh, Yeah, mm, except not, because as he said, they came dead last of 20 antivirus systems that um, AV test tested, which is just not good at all, is it? No, I can't even believe we're talking about AV on Android. Uh, And I guess this is a thing. This is an article we'll have linked in the show notes so you can read more if you care. But six of the 20 software suites sampled correctly flagged every single one as as a threat. Uh, So they did pretty good, but only 6 of 20 managed that far. 8 more managed 99%. That's pretty solid. But Google's own system, PlayProtect, which Google bills as the only solution you need to protect Android, it only detected 65.8% of threats. Mm. This really reminds me of Windows Defender and the Microsoft days when they got into antivirus. It's Windows all over again. Yeah, I remember when I first got into Linux, thinking, wow, this is great. I don't need to use antivirus anymore. And I heard the argument at the time that, well, if Linux was as popular as Windows, 
in terms of desktop market share, then people would be making malware for it and people would be exploiting it. Now, I question that to some extent because of the way that Linux is built. I think it's it's a better designed system, but there was never really a test of that because it wasn't widespread. Now, I know that Android is not desktop Linux. It's got a Linux kernel. It's a very different system, but here we have mass adoption of Linux in consumer devices, and now we're starting to see malware for it which kind of goes to show that if you've got enough market share, people will at least attempt to find vulnerabilities. I suppose. I think it's a more enticing market because you have a couple of fundamentals about the majority of the market, probably not the majority of our audience, but the majority of the market. Uh, They're likely running devices that have built-in vulnerabilities at this point that just haven't been patched for a long time. And they have an always-on data connection. And that is monetizable by malware in a really specific, special way because even just loading ads is so profitable over a large majority of phones if you get a lot of you get 100,000 200,000 phones and you get you get redirecting ads and it's only a few pennies but it really adds up and there's no firewall there's no there's no network filter there's no network administrator there's really no kind of protection that you have in place for a lot of desktop PCs i mean i would i would argue that a desktop PC behind a basic linksys router is better protected than your average smartphone that's just raw dog on the cellular network. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. Uh, I suppose a lot of people use Wi-Fi a lot of the time, and therefore they are behind a NATed router. And But that's even worse, because you're hopping around unknown networks constantly. You never know who's monitoring. These are a specific kind of threat vector, because they're devices that are unpatched. You're all over on networks. You're, on your, you're directly connected to the cellular net- network, and the next day you're over on the Starbucks network with 15 other scoundrels. And there are... There's just so many more attack vectors on Android than there are on desktop Linux. So what's the solution then? Install antivirus. (laughs) Isn't that a horrible thing? I I hate to make this an iOS or Android conversation, but this doesn't seem to be an issue on the iOS side. So perhaps it could just be taken care of at the Play Store level. Realistically, if you turn off sideloading and you just install apps from the Play Store, most of the time you're going to be safe. It's, It's countries where they don't have Play services or... They can't, get, they can't get a Play account for some reason, where they turn on sideloading. It's a problem. Because geeks who turn on sideloading probably are not the target here. They're probably generally... If you, if you intentionally enable sideloading, you probably know what you're doing. Probably, I suppose. But it's, I'm setting up a phone with Lineage for someone, and I want to put Adaway on there, which means I have to enable sideloading. Yeah. And it, it makes me... Hmm. I don't know, should I do that? You get even more control in later versions of Android with sideloading. But uh, I will admit here on the program that I turned on sideloading so I could install a tricorder app, and I've left it turned on. (laughs) But it is the coolest tricorder app ever, so in my defense. (laughs) You're such a Star Trek nerd. Last.ting.com. Ting is a smarter way to do mobile. It's just what you use is what you pay, and that's it. No contract, no agreements. They have CDMA and GSM networks, so you can pick whatever works better in your region, or if you have a device that supports one of those networks, which is probably all of them, just check their BYOD page. You can bring it over to Ting. And if you go to last.ting.com, you'll get a $25 service credit. And your average Ting bill is just $23 per phone. That paid for more than my first month. Last.ting.com, nationwide coverage, pay for what you use, a great dashboard with no contracts. They have a bunch of great devices you can buy directly. You hear Joe and I often talk about Lineage or Sailfish, One of the things I absolutely love about Ting is they have no strategy tax. 
You can load whichever OS just functions properly on the network. They don't have an experience that they want you to have installed on your phone. They just get out of the way and let you use your phone. Last.ting.com. Okay, let's talk about Tor and their fundraising campaign, Powering Digital Resistance. Just a quick plug for them, really. They're looking for donations, and Mozilla is going to match any donations that the public make up to a total of half a million dollars, which is not insignificant, is it? That means if they get 500,000 from people donating, they'll end up with a million. Yeah, that means your donation goes twice as far. So I did it. I donated, and I I declined any of the benefits. They had, like, stickers, and the level I was donating, you got a shirt, which I I honestly wouldn't mind, but I felt like... You know what? Keep the money. Save even. Save. Make even more profit off of my donation. Yeah, Tor's not something I use because it's just inconvenient because of all the captures for every bloody website that you go to. Yeah, anything that's got Cloudflare is just a nightmare. <laughs> but I can see that it's very important for some people. Absolutely the same for me. I'm not even sure if I've used Tor this year, but I felt like it's a great resource if I ever do need it, and it is a great resource for others. And while Mozilla's doubling it. Why not? Why not do it? So I tossed in. Yeah, it's not like Mozilla can't afford it. Eh? Um, all right, well, that was a quick mention. Another quick mention for Solus. Um, Ike put up a post on Google Plus asking for people to contribute artwork to Solus 4, which is coming, uh, I think, before the end of the year, but anyway, coming relatively soon. And he's basically admitting that he's terrible at art and that's why there's no installer slideshow, that sort of thing. So they're looking for volunteers for this. And the way I see it is this Solus have done so much great work for the Linux community, specifically with the steam stuff. It just seems fair enough for them to ask for a bit back from the the community. So if you're good at art and want to help them out, it'd be great. Even if you don't use Solus, even if it's just to help out the Linux community. Yeah. And I would say that the steam stuff is even the least of it. There is more stuff than people are aware of. And eventually I hope the entire Linux community will see the clear Linux bootloader way. And uh, we'll get we'll get new bootloaders for all. In the meantime, also help them out with a logo. They should add that to their list. <laughs> well, you don't really care for the Solus logo, then. It doesn't make me think of Solus at all. It just makes me it makes me think actually of software development. When I see that, it looks like a software development company logo. That's all. Yeah. I don't think of the Linux desktop at all, or the great desktop that it makes. But maybe that's because I'm just lost in VR, Joe. <laughs> yeah, maybe. So this is a bit of a depressing thing, isn't it? That Steam VR market share is already bigger than Steam Linux market share. <sighs> that doesn't look good, does it? I suppose it doesn't look good, no. This is a hard thing to measure precisely because overall Steam market share is always increasing, so it doesn't necessarily correlate to less Linux. It just means it's just a smaller percentage of the overall share. The reality is, is that VR games are are those sort of adopter-driven type games. You're going to buy the hardware, you're going to load Windows because that's where the best VR games are at, and you're gonna if you're going to invest hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars into this, you're not going to stop at the OS. So that doesn't surprise me. I would be surprised if in a year or so things didn't shake out, though. What, you think that there'll be more people using Linux or fewer people using VR? Well, both, actually. Uh, You'll have more people using Linux, you'll have more VR games on Linux, and you're going to have more adoption of Vulkan, which is going to enable the more VR games. And I think as that shifts, you'll see this even out a bit. It's always going to be predominant on Windows for now, but I would suspect that eventually there's going to be some other VR platform that's going to kick Windows off the charts that comes out. And we won't even be having this conversation anymore. I don't know, man. PC gaming and Windows are just so closely tied together 
unless you've got a completely independent VR headset that doesn't need a Windows PC or some sort of PC to plug into, but that feels so far away. Yeah, but I think it'll happen. That's exactly what I think. You might be right. Uh, I was just thinking recently, I don't need Linux to have all the games. I just need to have a few games that I want to play, and it's pretty much there now. And I think that's going to become more and more commonplace. We'll see. Time will tell. Well, speaking of looking ahead, 2018 is going to be a year of regulation for cryptocurrencies, in Russia at least. Yeah, there's been new orders from on high in the Russian government to determine how cryptocurrencies, all of them, but, you know, obviously Bitcoin, fit into the broader Russian financial regulatory framework by next July. The orders also are going to require legislators to set up a framework for registering miners, you know, the people that are running the blockchains and the backbones of the currency network, so that the Russian government can effectively tax them. Now, the whole idea here is to set up a regulatory platform known as a sandbox. And look at them using these modern terms, where blockchain developers can basically demonstrate new technologies or new applications to the Bank of Russia so that they can then be regulated appropriately and legal before the end of the year. I get the feeling all this regulation that we're starting to see now in China, in Russia, and in Europe, and even in the States, is just going to have the complete opposite effect to what they want. The, this is the old financial systems trying to regulate this new thing. And it, you cannot do that. It's just going to drive it, not, not even underground, but it's just going to drive it further away. And it's going to mean that, okay, it might mean that these currencies don't have as high a dollar value, but does that even really matter if you're actually trading in the currency itself? And it's, it's going to kind of, separates the the two systems in my mind mm. maybe i'm totally wrong about this but that just that's the feeling that i get not now but long term this is the effect that it'll have i think i disagree i think it's going to it's going to legitimize the currencies because it it adds a tangible aspect to them that the government is recognizing quantifying and taxing them it creates a legal framework around the cryptocurrency that takes it out of a gray space and brings it clearly into the financial regulations, which means real speculators, real financial people can start to treat this as a commodity that they can trade in without legal ambiguity. It's actually, I think, going to be a huge boost for cryptocurrencies in Russia because now it's not a gray market item. It's legally being recognized. Well, yeah, but what about people who want it to be gray area or, or even worse than that, people who want to conduct criminal activity using it? they're still going to to use cryptocurrencies for that, even if it is legitimized. And maybe it'll be forks, maybe it'll be new currencies coming along, but you're not going to get rid of that kind of activity by regulation because right. they don't care about regulation. 100%. And that's the beauty of it. There will always be a viral aspect to cryptocurrencies that gray and black markets can trade in and they'll be able to trade up into Bitcoin, which is going to be the beauty of it for them. Um, and there's so there will be a legitimacy, quote unquote, facade placed on cryptocurrencies. But the just sort of Wild West nature of cryptocurrencies means there's always going to be new ones created every single day that the speed of government can't keep up with, that the black market could take advantage of and adapt very quickly to. And it's it's just going to be a lot more of what we see today. In some ways, Russia is ahead of many other countries with this. Well, that's true, because we're starting to see plans for regulation, whereas Russia is just going ahead and doing it. 
And the sandbox idea is not a bad one. It's like, here's a safe space where we won't come after you, where you can prove a concept to us, and we will bless it from beginning to end. And if you think about that, the market's going to like that, because that's going to be something safe for businesses to bet on. And so you think that this is going to mean a massive rise in the value of Bitcoin, basically. I think it's going to be good for Bitcoin. Yeah, I think uh, we're going to look at the $5,000 plus price today. And... uh, it will be. Uh, we'll look back at that. And go. Oh yeah, remember when it was? Remember when it was below seven thousand? I'm not saying anytime soon, and things can change. But typically, this stuff ends up in the long run being a boost for Bitcoin. It has every single time so far. Okay. Well, I'm going to ask you to go out on a limb here. Give me the dollar value of Bitcoin one year, five years, and ten years from now. Couldn't do it, Joe. Like, I, if you had told me today that it was over 5,000 U.S. greenbacks, I would have told you no way. And so now it seems like 10,000 is the next threshold. I think I think all bets are off. I think it's probably going to get there. And once it gets there, people are either going to freak out and sell or it's going to enter the radars of the really big investors, the people who buy really expensive commodities. Oh, I'm sorry. As we record this, it's uh, it's over $6,000. Yeah, it has been for a while, I think. I've stopped watching it closely because it just drives me crazy. (laughs) It's just, it really is something to watch this. Every time I see this, I think to myself, I should still be doing Plan B because this is really something to watch this. Well, I'm sure this is a topic that we're going to return to on future shows. And to catch those, go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe. And send us your feedback at linuxactionnews.com slash contact. And you can support the whole network at the Patreon page, patreon.com slash jupitersignal. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week. See you later. 